The GovCon Secrets Podcast will take a deep dive into the government contracting space where you'll hear from a variety of expert guests on strategy, pricing, benefits, business tactics, and all this to save you a ton of money, time, energy, and effort. I'm your host, Jim Campbell, former Marine and CEO of Axon Fringe Solutions Group. My goal is to redefine the benefits world with a brutally honest view of how benefits, compliance, finance, and overall contracting strategy mixed with my years of experience and expertise can benefit you to deploy strategies to help your GovCon grow and win in the future, all the while without boring you to death. We're going to have fun. Let's start the show. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another GovCon Secrets podcast. Today, we have special guest, Matt Stavish from Republic Capital Access. We're going to talk about all things in the Beltway, a lot of exciting things going on, not only with the economy, but what Matt sees from the do's and don'ts, and then uh, the ins and outs of how you can take advantage of your contract rewards, maximize the return, or use a leverage partner to make sure you can grow properly and uh, not get yourself in trouble. So uh, it should be an exciting uh, show. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jim, for having me. You bet, man. I know we've uh, we've known each other for a while now. Uh, you always make comments that we only see each other at conferences in January, but uh, recently we got to catch up again. It was good to see you. But so many things have happened since we first met. I don't even remember how long ago. And the industry still seems to stay the same. But I know what you guys do at Republic Capital Access and what you how you've grown. But why don't you give us a quick background? Sure. So uh, Republic Capital Access, we're a specialty finance company for government contractors, member of the DOD Trusted Capital Marketplace, financed a little over 1,200 companies and 4,000 unique contracts. We work with companies from startup base and um, clients over a billion dollars in revenue, um, all providing the same product and different need for kind of the bigger companies and the smaller firms, but it's a working capital solution, offering receivables, financing, and unbilled receivables, financing, um, and all working exclusively in the federal government contract space. And it's amazing because when I met Ed, the founder of Public Capital Access, better part of 13 years ago at this point, mm-hmm. this was his idea. This was his brain trust. And the whole thing was, you know, um, we're going to take over the inventory or the, the billables and we're going to hold the owner harmless, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to take over. And, and I remember him saying that, like I said, a long time ago. Tell me how that works, because a lot of people usually, when they talk about financing, they're like, the mortgage is up, I'm screwed. Yeah. Uh, tell me how that works. Yeah, sure. So we kind of look at the world a little bit differently than most people. The offers a little more flexibility to, to our clients that we believe and provide some balance sheet treatment. But real simply, um, a company would have a $100 receivable to the government and a traditional bank line. They'll loan money to the company as a liability and give the company cash in exchange for that loan. Obviously, you know, to provide a loan to the company, especially at the bank, you need a, a little bit better balance sheet for the, the entity that's borrowing the money. And our view of the world is we'll buy that receivable in a true sale. And when we buy it, just like the company has a pen that they would sell, we buy that receivable, give them cash with a corresponding liability. So it's a true sale. And then to your point exactly, it's not a recourse. There's no personal guarantees. There's no liens and no covenants. So for our are growing smaller customers. It's a way to access liquidity and enhance their working capital position to finance contracts to kind of hit that exponential growth curve. Um, and for our bigger clients, they're using it for the balance sheet treatment. If you look at what we're providing, it's a very similar product than what you see of some of the larger publicly traded cons. 
um, that are selling receivables. And the, the term that the financiers will use is the securitization structure. <laughs> um, you know, we don't usually throw that term around out there. We try to keep the finance nomenclature to a minimum. But it's really a way to access the full working capital capability of your contracts if the company's balance sheet may not, from a traditional aspect, think that it is lendable. Right. So you look at that, you look at that invoice because it's backed by the federal government, pretty much just cash in hand, right? And and I know that you guys obviously you get paid, you take your piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of banks don't look at it like that. They don't understand the GovCon space. So, you know, I'm sure that's a leg up for you know, Republic Capital Access, because that's all you focus on. But the thing that really always got me was the small employer, the small mm-hmm. employer that's out there using like MCAs and they're just going out anywhere they can to find cash. Have you seen that paradigm shift? Uh, have the small employers gotten, you know, better at finding companies like yours, or are they still kind of stuck in the same quagmire they've always been? It's a really great and interesting question because the time period that we're in. So I would say from like, 2010, if you look at historically, 2010 leading up to March of 2020, we saw a bunch of companies that would have the MCA loans on their balance sheet. The MCA market was just rocking and rolling. There was a little bit of frothiness in that market in the late 2017, 18, 19. You, you saw some of the bigger players that we would know um, would kind of, they had some issues and whatnot. And then COVID hit. And then the finance markets, especially for the small businesses, were flooded with very various types of capital from PPP to idle loans. And that's a whole other story for another day. And those MCAs kind of stopped. They just weren't out there. Um, There's no one to really finance. They're working on their portfolio. There's a lot of cash in the environment. And I would say in the last six to nine months, we have seen a massive increase in companies that have taken an MCA. You know, and we just simply tell people if you're finding your financing on the internet, it's probably not the best place to go. Um, almost every company knows of a commercial banker, and that's probably where you should go first. You may qualify for a commercial bank line, and that's great. But if not, that professional probably knows people, whether you're government or not, they can help you that they partner. And so we just kind of caution people probably stay off Google for finding those sort of loans. <laughs> Because, you know, money, money is like a lot of things in life. You get it fast, cheap, and good. But if you get it fast in two days, it's not going to be cheap. And in that market, there's a lot of stacking, right? Loans behind loans. And that can create a very quick uh, downward pressure spiral on company. So, you know, to answer your question, it's been interesting. It's been, it was kind of a huge uptick, kind of flattened out. COVID happened in the last six to nine months. It's been very active. You see a lot of companies with those sort of loans. What's happened, we think, and talking to some other folks in the finance space, small businesses, some of the pandemic funds have been burned off and spent in the kind of most of the sectors that we see folks working in. There's a lot of margin compression due to labor rates and obviously interest rates. And so, you know, there's a couple of factors that are really squeezing uh, small businesses right now and, and get looking for cash to try and float. You know, I, I, I often say that we were uh, stuck in a Google effect from like 2005 just till about 2019, 2020 or before COVID. And what I meant by, I always mean by that is that everybody wanted to offer their employees like, you know, the, the paid lunches and, you know, we have the greatest office environment. That was not different for GovCons. I remember in 2010, 2008, going to people's offices and they were decked out. 
right? They had like the lunches brought in and all that. They still had their own skiff and it was it was really money was flying around. Now, just recently started going back to offices and meeting people. That has all gone away, right? The commercial um the commercial lease is blown up, it's over. They're still yep. working from home. They have a really small footprint. The skiff is gone. Mm-hmm. And um I, I said to somebody, what, what about your benefits? Oh, well, we still have the best benefits around. And I, and I, okay, let's expound upon that. Yep. They're still giving these crazy benefits, like six, eight weeks vacation, mm-hmm. you know, the IC space or NIT. And I'm like, how are you affording that when you just told me you took a loss just to get into that contract? Mm-hmm. And then they start to talk about their banking arm and, you know, the way they're using their line of credit. And I start to see this tidal wave happening just like it did back when, right before the great S word sequestration hit, you know, people were really heavily levered, but now they don't have the lease space anymore. Where are they levered? What, what is going on? Are they just not getting the rate structure that they had before? What's going on? So in my opinion, just from hearing people around, you know, I was at the, um, one of the multitude of investment banking conferences over the fall (laughs) and um, there's a presentation and the guys, he's been doing investment banking for 20 years in GovCon. He goes, there's not going to be contract mods because interest rates have gone up. Like you're not getting a contract modded that's going to increase the rate that you bill at a particular size. You know, a lot of the companies, especially we use the IC community as an example, they're mainly subs. So they build their prime as TNF. Mm-hmm. Maybe that prime's contract to the government is TNM cops plus, so they could always add on their margin. That doesn't always blow down to the small. It's just usually just straight TNM. Um, or maybe it's FFP that the prime is billing the government. Mm-hmm. So they don't quite get that extra juice that the prime gets on billing. I think it's just very simple. I think that they're so competitive on trying to get these the right folks in. They feel like they have to offer the Cadillac benefit plans for people really even jump ship to another company. But they're not getting the margins that you would need to afford that with labor rates going up. And then that's not even talking about recruiting fees. I mean, I have heard the stories, actually heard the stories on recruiting fees that people pay. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars for oh, yeah. one FTE. It, and like you need the FTE to work for six months to break even on the recruiting fee. That's right. And then you're not even, and that's, you're not even profitable on that person for the net. And that that's a person that's billing two to three hundred grand a year. Yep. And and I get that environment, but I think they're so looking for billets. If it got kind of words last night that we we're at, two companies were up there and they announced that we're hiring. See us at this table. Now it's tongue in cheek, right? Hundreds of open billets at companies. But, and that passes down to the smalls. They're trying to fill billets and they feel like they need to offer these plans, but your cost of goods sold is increasingly getting higher. And employees are putting pressure on small businesses. I need a cost of living increase, you know, inflation, all this sort of stuff. But the top line is not moving demonstrably enough, if at all. That's right. hundred percent. And again, I go back to that Google wave. I, I just joked because then you saw LinkedIn and then you saw all these other companies, especially in Silicon Valley, they had to match these crazy campuses and benefits and everything. And then they started to eat one another. They really started. Then people just said, hey, this has gotten out of control. And we're going to go to other parts of the country where we can actually live. We'll see in GovCon, like you said, you can't just change your rate structure. You can't just make more. 
And uh, that employee, although they might demand more or they think they can jump ship, now everybody's feeling the same pressure. So unlike 2008, 2010, there's nowhere to go that's a better deal because that employer is also feeling the pressure in the pinch. Um, do you think that that's now having a push on the financial markets? Like the lenders that you talk to yourself and the deals that you look at, is there kind of a panic from some of these, not just small and mid-sized businesses, but are the larger businesses and the larger contractors starting to have a little bit of a, uh, hey, Matt, we might need to talk. We might have to look at some debt structuring. So if you look at, talk to a middle market banker in the early 2022, late 2021, what sort of leverage could a senior lender give on a deal? And you hear, you know, three and a half to maybe very aggressive five, six times leverage. That's very aggressive. And now it's like up and no more than three times. So, you know, the leverage and, and you know, all the, the investor bank conference you is the leverage that people can get. It's harder to get leverage on. So, you know, you, as interest rates go up and if any of those debt pieces are tied to prime or sulfur, as the cost of capital goes up, so the pressure on the company, um, and you could have leverage covenants that become an issue. We are starting to see some of that bubble up. You know, I think that the bigger picture for small businesses is you have to always remember that banks are in business. And with the cost of capital of prime going up or SOFR going up, banks still have a lot of deposits that they're, they're able to make, you know, they're, they, and this isn't the news, they read their 10 Qs. They are making more money on loans now because interest rates are going up. So banks will not feel the pressure from a revenue generation standpoint to always do deals. Where I think if you go back, obviously, once we kind of got through the beginning of COVID, but even in the 2015 to 2020, we were at super low interest rates, right? We, yep. Everyone was getting a bank line below, you know, 4% or less, it felt like. And now, you know, as of today, a bank line that's prime plus one is 8%. It is a completely different world. So, you know, I don't think that the traditional banks will feel the pressure to get revenue and that they'll be a little bit stingier on the credits that they choose because there's not, they get a little more, you know, their cost of goods sold is going to stay pretty cut system because they have deposits and they get hurt a little bit. Yeah. They don't have to do the volume in order to get the revenue. That's right. Yeah. yeah. They can be pickier. They can just focus on their portfolios, let those perform and be very happy and then just kind of see how things go and sit. So if small businesses need to take that into account, may not be as easy to access traditional credit markets. And so they should have conversations well ahead with the traditional, you know, banks and whatnot when they would need capital, because it may not be as easy as it was, you know, six to 12 months. That's a, that's a really good point. And, and I'm, I know this blows right into your business, so I'm not, I'm kind of throwing you softball here, but it teed it up. You go to like every event, you know, every time we catch up or something, I know that you're traveling around doing every event, but you talk to a ton of bankers and the people that loan to the top end. I know, you know, those people as well you're getting the insight from those people about where the market is. Does this have a direct impact to the amount of deals that you're seeing now? Are you seeing a flow, not just again from the small guys, but in general, and are the bankers pushing people your way? I mean, we partner with banks all the time. So, okay. you know, certainly if there's a deal that they can't do, we step in and facilitate it, try to help them put their treasury there, develop a relationship with the bankers so that they can then eventually move the treasury that particular bank. I mean, it will, I think, impact all non-banks because uh, companies are going to get capital from somewhere. 
you know, I wasn't in this market in the early 2000s, but whatever, essentially, right. is you know, it used to be banks would do a line of credit at 100, 150k. You know, they were in that business, and banks stopped really getting heavy into that business because it's a lot of manpower through those lines. And that vacuum in the space created the opportunity for the MCA loans because they need the capital for sale, right? And, you know, restaurant has a bunch of credit card receipts, right? And yeah. that's, that, that's kind of the genesis of how that market came to be. So I think that any time the traditional markets pull back, that board will be filled by someone in the non-bank markets. And, you know, so obviously we think that we're positioned to fill that void. You know, what we've seen a swing the other years too, where, you know, the bank markets are very aggressive and, you know, there's still deals that are out there. So, yeah, you know, I think that all sectors of kind of non-bank finance will probably end up benefiting from the, you know, if banks do become a little bit more conservative, they do. I think the right. biggest takeaway for anyone who's talking about this is have conversations with the bankers that you know, your banker, to make sure that your liquidity is something that is not going to be a risk and that you're performing on that loan and that you're having a constant communication flow so that you can look around that corner and it's not a stressful event. Yeah, ab- and that's great advice because, as you know, we have clients across the country and and only working in GovCon. But is that banker that's sitting in Dallas, Texas, aware of this 300-person contractor and their business? Do they have the resources? Because they, they don't understand the business the way you do. They don't see the deal flow that you do. They're not maybe at Bank of America and have the connections there. Do you have those resources across the country, various banks, maybe regional banks, whatever it is, where people say, I know a guy, he's back in D.C. and he he have a resource? Yep. We have relationships with bankers all over the country and centers of influence and kind of the pockets of GovCon that you would expect there would be pockets of GovCon. But it's interesting, like even, you know, like you and I go down to Suffolk every year, down to Florida area. It, there's still a majority of companies that while they may have people or significant presence in a non-DC location, for whatever reason, they still have a decision maker that's in the DC. It, it is so common. Um, you know, you go down at the, the Charleston community, um, go down there. Almost all those companies are headquartered in like Arlington or Rockville, right? They're up in this area. Yeah. They just fly down there. Um, that's right. You know, so there's, I think that, you know, you obviously, from a business development standpoint, you got to have relationships with people as you can that are going to touch your your, your market segment. Um, but this is still DC. This is still where majority of decision makers reside in service providers. You know, you guys are all over the country. Yeah. Um, you know, all a lot of the major CPA firms for GovCompetence located here. Right. Even the big companies, their GovCon people are in this area. That's right. So I do think there is a, a still like a pull to this area that's unlike others. Yeah. For, uh, for better or worse. Right. I mean, uh, you, I have to wish, I wish I didn't have to get on the beltway in order to get to make things as right. Zoom and Teams meetings have been a godsend. But, uh, you know, it, it brings me back to your small business. You win an award and then you look up and say, wait a second, I've got 15 employees and I just won an award for 30 employees. I wasn't preparing on tripling my manpower because I don't have the budget to make that first payroll. And I might have to wait from the pride for 60 days or whatever it is for that first invoice to get cut. 
Do you walk these companies through that kind of scenario? Do you help educate them in how to then create a balance flow of billing and receiving so they might not need you, but you can get them kickstarted or they're a resource in the future? We, we actually have a picture that we walk through with people of a 60-day timeline, just as you illustrated. Uh, work starts here. You have a payroll here, here, bill here, a payroll here, here, and a pay here. And we take them through how they solve and they accomplish all those payrolls in between then. And then how they start hopefully weaning themselves off of borrowing money pre-receivable, um, what we call earned in a bill. Um, and we take them through, find that pictures work really well. You know, most small business owners, their, their expertise is execution. It's maybe recruiting, it's their network. It's not always cash flow. They can't always put controllers. We think pictures are really good to explain that to people. And we take them right through that example of this is what you're going to do. And as you apply your profits, you should see this occur at this waterfall effect. And when you get to this stage, you're probably going to be bankable if you're, you know, in eight, 10, 12 months, whatever it is, depending on the shape of the company. Yeah, we are completely about explaining that process and that issue. Um, and then explaining in that timeline where bank markets are applicable and where they're not applicable. Just, you know, the conversations and the questions they may need to ask their banker if they already have that relationship. That's where I was going next. Like, when do they become bankable? And then, again, some some people can't afford a comptroller. They're not big enough for a CFO. And the prime might say, hey, we're, the, we're in this thing together for the next five years on our terms, right? I think it's going to work this way. Um it's it's a very interesting dynamic because then you then see, hey, we're pretty good at this thing. We won a 30-person award. We won another award with another prime that's 60 people. Now we have 100 employees. And uh, this guy, Matt, helped us, right? So they But they learn and the training wheels yep. come off. But what about that small disadvantaged market, right? The ones that rely on the 8A contracts or their small disadvantaged business status. Because yep. we've seen them regress, right? We sure a lot of them not be able to handle full and open competition. Is that another market that you all target? Well, we've got to target all, all of GovCon markets. Um, you know, the full and open competition, I mean, that's the, gosh, I mean, how many webinars, seminars are there about how to transition from small to large, and they try to do that, and they slide back to small. Yep. Um, you know, and, that, and that's really on the internal juice of the company, like in their BD machine, you know, can you compete and offer a solution to the customer that's going to be differentiated now that you're competing against companies with maybe unlimited budgets to a degree, or it right. feel like it. Uh, so we certainly try to run into those folks and then be helpful, you know, where we can. I think getting back to your original point, though, if a company can't afford or doesn't have a controller or an outsourcer or CFO, there's some really great outsourcing services. And I do think that, you know, we just tell people when you win a contract, you can hire the things that you need in the back office, hire benefits, benefit advisor, hire an outsource controller, CFO, hire HR person, recruiter, and then you need to qualify for your capital. But the other ones are pretty controllable. And, and you should at least have those people ready to go if you think that you could possibly win one of these contracts. They should be ready to rock and roll. Now, do they always hit it? You know, you don't, but you should be ready to pick up the phone and say, hey, I need our, I need our, your, our gravy just and ready to go. And that takes burden off of the small business owner. While you're paying for those services, having those resources in place will save you massive time, energy, 
it, it paid a ton of risk. hundred percent. Oh, well, you know, we were talking right before we got on. It's, it's amazing because I, sometimes I look at this market in segments. You have the IT sec services with the IC being a carve out, right? And like mm-hmm. that intelligence community is very defined. Um, and then you have IT with service contract in it. Then you have service contract act and you have Davis Bacon, right? Yep. I know you guys don't go down the Davis Bacon construction road, but have you created different parameters of lending for different types of contractors? Are there different requirements that you look at or is it just balance sheet and, hey, we're going to buy that invoice from you and we're going to finance it? It's very simple. We just look at, we don't really have an inclination of really what they're doing. It's, you know, we can provide this solution and this liquidity to solve the problem for you guys to help accomplish the goals you're looking to. The only time where we really can't be helpful is if like it's a construction company. Yeah. There's a bond in place and there's some excellent folks that we work with that will finance bonded receivables. And that's really a specialty unto itself. There's a lot of things that are never understand. Yeah. Yeah. No, and and that's the reason I ask, right? Because a lot of people that would be listening to this that know either one of us, they see us at some conference, whatever, they're going to come up. Hey, I have this company. Well, you might have to talk to this guy. The, the great thing about, I think, being in the Beltway, especially for you and some of our other friends that we know, you know everybody. You talk to everybody. You see everybody. Me, on the other hand, not so much, but you know, you, you come across it in your in your dealings. Yes. The idea around the segmentation, though, I know from a benefit standpoint, it's required, right? You have to look at mm-hmm. different types of business. As a company grows and they don't necessarily, they can't necessarily match like a proposal shop of a top tier contractor. Yep. Do you guys do like seminars or like anything to help them kind of pay attention to things before they get too deep into the into the cooking here because sometimes companies get themselves in trouble trying to get outside of their scope and then they get overextended should they win an award. Do you guys do anything about helping companies prepare financially for that stuff? Yeah, we will do a lot of letters of financial capability for folks. You know, if you need to throw it at RFP to show you the capability to perform, but kind of just like you said, you know, we are very good about staying in our scope, right? You know, we provide a working capital finance solution and if you need help talking through how you would ramp up or buy a piece of equipment, let's have that conversation. Um, but if you want something that's more nuanced, that's not what we do. And so you should go talk to our partners that it is all that they do. And, you know, a lot of folks in this area, and you can get a lot of free advice for a cup of coffee. You know, it, it, yep. uh, you know, a lot, we, we tell folks that all the time. It's like, you know, go, go sit down with, you know, a, a BD professional, tell them what you're looking for, tell them the challenges, this customer you're going for. You'll probably learn as much in that hour of coffee, um, and you may not need everything unless you think that you have a great chance to win after that conversation. So, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of really just staying very much in our scope of what we do so that the service that we provide is, you know, exactly what they need. And then, you know, SCA Davis, I have no idea. Right? They just talk to Jim and his team. That's all. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I can't even pretend to know anything about that. Yeah, I think that there's a, a minimum number in there that changes every year. So what we do. So we right. just stay in our lane, say for the proposal that you're going for, we can do this and use that widget. And and if that works great, if not, that's okay too. Yep. Yep. And, and again, that that's why I think uh, the comment you made, you can get a lot for a cup of coffee. A lot of people that aren't in the beltway are saying, well, I can't have that cup of coffee. Okay. So let, let's say a cup of coffee an honest reach out, you know, LinkedIn search and you find Matt Stavish. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, a lot of companies don't know what to ask. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to financial wellness, financial literacy, not just on the personal side, but business acumen. For GovCons, I think it's a completely different set of tools. Mm -hmm. um, and would you would you agree with that? Would you agree that there, like there's financial literacy that you need to have for GovCon? Um, I don't know if it's financial literacy, but you need to be financially, you need to be able to read your financial statements and then trust the person that prepares. You know, it's like um, you know, like the valedictorian is really good at all subjects in high school, right? And then, uh, but the entrepreneur who starts a company and changes the world was probably great at one or two subjects. And there's a lot of times those entrepreneurs are more like that individual. I was great at performing this particular task in the military. And I have this network now and I can solve this very particular problem. You don't need to be then become, oh, I need to be really good at reading financial statements. No, you just need to be average. But you need to have people that are really good that are surrounding you so that you can be great at what you're great at. And I think that's where people get in trouble is they think they need to be all things to everything in the organization. You don't. You need to be just average and then have people around you that can help you raise your organizational excellence in those areas. But I think the entrepreneur that starts to go over a contracting business, they have a, a, a trait, they have a skill set from their time in the military or the government or in the civilian sector that is exceptional. And that's a trait that will differentiate the company. That's the trait that will make them have a liquidation event that will change their life. And they should never take away from letting that trait and that skill set maximize the value. And do you, do you guys ever weigh that in your decisions of helping companies? Like, do you look at the entrepreneur and see that, hey, they've got things going on or they can grow this? Or is it just, hey, you've got an invoice and we'll finance it? I mean, we certainly look at that as a, as a, as a factor. I mean, especially more dealing with the smaller companies, right? Yep. So you have a company that's kind of at, say, 10 employees for the last 10 years. The chances are they'll have 10 employees for your 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. But then you have someone that comes out of the IC community and they start up a company and they have a TS clearance and their partner that they worked with for three years has a TS clearance and they've been delivering to this client. And then they're on two subcontracts to large primes in the IC community. A pretty good idea that that company is going to grow at a curve that's pretty exponential, right? Yep. And so you want to obviously weed that from a from a standpoint of like you know where who's going to be the the one that really grows here, right? Yep. Uh, and for some people that you know have five people and have had five people firm, be like you know there's ways that you can fund that company that probably are more efficient than us. Like that's not going to really change a lot. You don't really need a lot of capital to do that at that point. If you do something's wrong. So there's, 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 we don't evaluate it from an underwriting standpoint, but certainly like, you know, everybody in the service providing business wants to put our flag on that, that next rising stall. That's true. Yep. That's a very good point. So we, you know, uh, come across a lot of the same folks. We talk to a lot of the same people, anything new that you've heard or you're thinking about, or that's got you thinking about 2023 going into next year that. Raises an eyebrow. How's you excited? Any news? Anything that pops out to you? I just read an article this morning that the DOD budget will probably go down for the next fiscal year. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, that will triple down to small businesses in a material way, but it will probably eventually, it, it's, it's, it's not probably going to be the growing pie that it was. 
and I read some articles just in normal paper publications about, you know, if inflation going up, you know, what they'll be able to buy is going to be less with the budget going down. So I do think that it, it, it may not be the growing spend that we've been accustomed to for several years in a row here, and that may be a little bit different. So that's kind of the one thing in 2023 that I think people should just keep an eye on. The most exciting thing I think I've written the last week is, uh, you know, there's the Navy is dividing up a, a all an open contract into five small business contracts. And I think that's great. You know, talking to BD professionals and whatnot, I always, the, the, uh, the contract management and stuff is re- you know, really reduce bidding opportunities for smalls because if you didn't get out of particular IDIQ, and then you had to fight again, task orders is where it's been very tough. Yep. So I think that's a great thing for small government contracts. That's kind of opening up more opportunities. So, but I do think 2023 will be very interesting. Um, I think there will be less money out there spent. I don't know. I don't think the triple, it's still a big, a very big pie. And we are in a kind of a financial market place from an interest rate perspective that we haven't been as a country for, you know, probably 25 years. Yeah. 25 to 30 years. That's what they said. Um, yep. And most business owners did not experience that in the mid nineties. And most CFOs and controllers did not experience that in the mid nineties. You know, most of the, you know, if you're under the age of 45, your entire life in finance, you've been dealing with interest rates with numbers that would be just the number of fingers you have on one hand. That's right. And that's going to change. Yep. So I think that 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 will be kind of interesting to see how that affects the market. And and you mentioned that Navy contract. I actually was going to bring that up. Um, gives the smalls a chance to go out and compete, win some larger opportunities. Um, but we also know that there's some games played here in the Beltway, right? The yep. big guys or the the disadvantaged owned, you know, whatever companies, they kind of break up into smalls and they've got all the tools and the power of the back end monster machine. Um, are there any stop gaps that are put in that you've seen where a small business truly good at that job can stay ahead of the curve and still win? Or is it just, Hey, the, the, the rich get richer as it's always been. You know, it's interesting. Uh, not specific to that point, but I always find it funny how like a small business or what a small business contract, but like their subcontractor is marked front. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. Yep. You know, but who won the contract, right? Um, you know, maybe the small did and maybe it was the large, it could have been both. Um, but is it purely, you know, is it pure play small business? I don't know. You know, it, there is more agility in the small businesses. And I do think that the government sees that. Yeah, I feel like, Tangentially, there's better experts on these items than me with OTAs and servers to try to figure out how do they get to those in an efficient manner. I don't know if anyone's figured out how to get to those small, not traditionals in an efficient manner. Um, yep. Yep. You know, but a server and OTA folks probably have a pretty good opinion on that, but it seems like that's what you're trying to do. Yes. Stuff that's especially when, when they're moved out of FAR, right? So those opportunities moved out of FAR and opens up a faster lane to getting deals done and finding resources, R&D, OTAs, all that stuff is, um, yeah, and it's, it's very fast moving. And it's protest proof, you know? I mean, that's the other right. thing for smalls is, you know, you win a contract and it gets protested and you spend a significant amount of capital on legal fees where maybe a larger company can absorb that, a smaller company can't. So those are certainly, you know, if you have that cutting edge, that's a, a manner that you can get access to the customer in a contract that you don't have to have the risk of protest, you know? 
see the government doing that stuff. But I think you know these are strategies and people are looking at to try to make it a little bit easier to do business with the government. You know, but it's still a it's a big customer with a lot to spend. So it's uh it's still a really good market for folks to be in. Especially uh, Republic Capital Access, man. I know that uh, you guys are looking forward to it. You're always keeping the pen sharp. So, um, well, I really appreciate it, man. I have nothing else. Do you have anything you want to end on? No, thank you for having us. Um, really appreciate it. You know, for to see you on the circuit. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you around the way, man. Thanks again. Thanks. Mm-hmm.